You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 21st of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... If you want peace, destroy Hamas. If you want security, destroy Hamas. But Hamas claims they're close to reaching a truce agreement with Israel. We'll have the latest. Also ahead, the South Korean president warns the world is facing a polycrisis as he begins a four-day UK state visit. We'll examine how the two countries can use their alliance. Plus, commander of the Finnish Defence Forces discusses NATO membership and heightened tensions with Russia. We still need to allocate more money to defence to make sure that we are able to support Ukraine in long term, but at the same time reinforce our own capabilities to deter the threat what is there. It's not going away. Plus a celebration of 70s British funk and the return of HMV. We go retro in today's music news. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin has visited Ukraine, where he's pledged $100 million worth of military aid to the country. Japan has condemned the hijacking of a Japanese-operated British-owned cargo ship in the Red Sea by Iran-backed Houthi rebels. And an inquiry into the UK government's handling of the COVID pandemic has heard that the then-Chancellor of the Exchequer, now Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, said the government should just let people die during the outbreak rather rather than impose a second national lockdown. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day on more of those stories. But first, the chief of the Palestinian militant group Hamas says officials are close to reaching a truce agreement with Israel. Hamas told the Reuters news agency that the negotiations are reportedly centred on how long the pause will last, the delivery of aid into Gaza and the exchange of Israeli hostages held by Hamas for Palestinian prisoners in Israel. Meanwhile, the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says 13,000 people have been killed in the territory since Israel began its air and land campaign against Hamas. Israel began its campaign after Hamas fighters crossed the border into Israel on the 7th of October and killed more than 1,200 people and took more than 200 hostages. Well, to get the latest, I'm joined now by Greg Karlstrom, who's a Middle East correspondent and author of How Long Will Israel Survive? The Threat from Within. A very good morning to you, Greg. Hi, good morning. So could you just bring us up to date on these latest reports about this, this, how close we are to some kind of pause in the fighting? Sure. We've heard positive statements from Hamas, as you say, this morning, and also from the Americans in the past 24 hours who said they think they're getting close to a deal. This would be a multi-day pause, something between three and five days, and it would be designed to facilitate a hostage deal uh, for the release of at least some of the roughly 240 hostages who are being held in Gaza. So what's being discussed is that Hamas might release uh, around 50 people, women and children, uh, Uh, mostly from the the hostages that it is holding. Uh, In exchange, Israel would agree to stop fighting for a few days. There's been some talk around increased aid going into Gaza. 
during that pause, also a possible release of uh, some Palestinian prisoners that Israel is holding in its jails. We haven't heard anything from the Israeli government yet, uh, and we haven't heard anything final, but more optimistic statements coming out from the Palestinians and the Americans. How important is it that there seems to be a recognition on both sides that something needs to stop? There is. I mean, for the Israelis, the the question of hostages has become an increasingly big uh, political issue for the Netanyahu government. Uh, he had a meeting yesterday with the families of the hostages, and they are quite angry with him because they think his government has not prioritized trying to secure the release of the hostages. So uh, this is something that is increasingly important for the Israeli government. And then for Palestinians, of course, any break that would allow more aid to enter Gaza uh, is desperately needed at this point. And also for Hamas, I'm sure some of the logic of this is that uh, a halt at the fighting would give it a few days to sort of regroup and, and try to figure out its own military tactics going forward. Tell us a little bit, a little about, a little bit about the logistics of the, the negotiations. They're being held in Qatar, aren't they? And they are being uh, not mediated, but there's an intermediary of the ICRC. I mean, this is very much an international um, operation in Qatar, isn't it? It is. And it's also a very complicated negotiation because these talks are happening at, at several layers of remove. So the Israeli government will speak to the Qatari government. The Qataris will then talk to the Hamas leadership, the external leadership of Hamas that uh, is based in, in Doha, the Qatari capital. Those external leaders then have to get in touch with the ones inside of Gaza. And that has been difficult at times in recent weeks because uh, there have been periods where communications have been down in Gaza. And so there have been points where uh, the external group tries to pass a message to the ones in Gaza, and it takes two or three days to get a response from them. So uh, that has dragged out these negotiations. The Qataris are trying to mediate. There's also been a role for the Egyptian government, a quiet role for the Egyptian government, uh, which does also have a relationship with uh, some of the Hamas leadership in Gaza. So many different parties involved in these talks. And that in that incredibly delicate balancing act that describes the, the moment that a pause is agreed on, how long does it then take for that decision to be translated into what happens on the ground? Well, we'll have to see. I mean, it's been in, in wars past, there have been times where ceasefires or temporary ceasefires either haven't been respected or have taken a while to get off the ground. I mean, one thing that they have been talking about that Hamas has been pushing for is they don't just want an end to the fighting. They also want Israel to suspend its aerial surveillance of Gaza for at least part of the day, each day. So the Israeli drones that are constantly flying overhead, uh, Hamas wants those to be grounded so that when its fighters presumably come out of uh, underground tunnels with hostages who are being released, that they're not being surveilled by the Israelis who can then track them back to the entrances to these tunnels. So all sorts of, of very granular, very complicated uh, logistical and tactical questions as part of these negotiations. Let's talk about what is actually happening in Gaza or what we we know. Um, the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says 13,000 people have been killed in the territory since since the land campaign began against Hamas. Um, there's now the focus of the uh, the, the evacuation of, of, of more hospitals and more evacuations from the north of Gaza, um, in particular the Indonesian hospital yesterday. Right. And this has been one hospital after another over the past few weeks. We saw Shufa Hospital last week, which is the, the biggest hospital in Gaza. And that was the focus of 
uh, a six-day standoff, and then Israeli commandos went into the hospital. Now, as you say, there have been reports of uh, shelling on the Indonesian hospital, and it has been told to evacuate. I mean, part of the problem here, of course, is that there is no way to evacuate these patients in northern Gaza. There are really no functioning hospitals in the north now, aside from uh, one or two, and, and they have been told to evacuate. So, you know, we saw cases at Shifa, for example, of uh, premature babies who had to be pulled off of uh, pulled out of incubators uh, 28 of those were eventually brought across the border into Egypt but that was a complicated effort that required talking to the Israeli army talking to the Red Cross it took days to coordinate that so when the Israeli army tells these hospitals to evacuate that's not just a matter of people getting up and, and walking out the door there are very seriously ill patients in these hospitals wounded people babies who just cannot be easily moved and these hospitals in the north have become very much a, a focus for the Israelis they say they're are command and controlled tunnels operated by Hamas underneath them. They do. They've been saying that for more than a month now, going back to the start of the war and actually even before this war for years, the Israelis uh, said Shifa Hospital in particular was used as a headquarters for Hamas. Uh, since they went into Shifa Hospital last week, they haven't produced a whole lot of evidence to support that. There were some videos that came out in the first couple of days uh, showing a few rifles and grenades and, and other weapons in the basement of the hospital, but nothing that, according to international law experts, would, would rise to the level of making that hospital a, a valid military target. In the past two days, we have seen uh, videos coming out from the Israeli army uh, that seem to show a tunnel underneath the hospital. There's about a 50-meter tunnel that they sent a, a robot into to take video of, and that tunnel ends with a blast-proof door. Uh, they haven't yet opened that blast-proof door. They're worried that the tunnels are booby-trapped. They're worried about sending soldiers down there, but uh, presumably at some point they're going to. And so I don't think we can judge really yet these claims about uh, whether or not this hospital is being used as a command and control center. I think we still have to wait a bit more to see uh, what sort of evidence emerges. And in the in, in the meantime, people are being funneled down to the south in Rafa. Do we, do we have any idea about what life is like now on the on the area which which is near the crossing into Egypt uh, it's miserable in all of southern Gaza. The population has more than doubled over the past month as a million plus people evacuated from northern Gaza into the south. Uh, this flow of trucks that has been coming across the border from Egypt with food, water, medicine, uh, not nearly sufficient for what people need. So you talk to both aid workers and ordinary people in southern Gaza, uh, and they say most people there are skipping meals. They might get a couple of cans of tuna here and there or a bit of cheese every few days, but there is very little food. There's very little clean water. Uh, the hospitals there are overwhelmed. Doctors are performing surgery without anesthetics. They're running out of medicine. Uh, and people are just crammed into refugee shelters because there is nowhere else to sleep. So uh, you have shelters operated by the UN where hundreds of people are sharing toilets, hundreds of people are sharing showers. Uh, people sleeping outside in tents because they can't even find space inside of these shelters. Just absolutely miserable conditions that get worse by the day. Finally, um, we started off about international mediation. Let's let's end with the same thing. Is there a sense that the outside world is is that there is a, the beginning of the limits to the international community's support for all this? Um, we've seen uh, Joe Biden's um, raising questions over the weekend. We've heard Emmanuel Macron as well. I mean, what is the international feeling now? 
I mean, there is a widespread demand for a ceasefire, even last month when the UN General Assembly voted on a, a resolution calling for a sustained truce in Gaza, 120 countries voted in favor of that. Uh, the Arab world, the Middle East, certainly united calling for a ceasefire. You have a delegation of Arab foreign ministers uh, that was in China yesterday and planning to visit other world capitals to push for one. Uh, some Western leaders, as you say, Emmanuel Macron is one of them, have also called for a ceasefire. Uh, the one who hasn't, the really important one, is Joe Biden. He is in favor of short-term pauses to allow more aid into Gaza, but uh, he continues to resist calls for a permanent ceasefire. He thinks that would leave Hamas in power to continue menacing Israel. So uh, he has continued to fend off calls for a ceasefire. I don't know how long that's going to last. Some of that will depend on what happens uh, on the ground, particularly if the Israeli army goes into southern Gaza and we see another round of, of extremely bloody fighting like we saw in the first weeks of the war. Uh, I don't know at what point Joe Biden is going to start pushing for a ceasefire, but when you talk to people in Washington, they do say uh, it's it's coming. It's going to be in the coming weeks at some point. Even he is going to have to change his position on this. Greg Karlstrom on the line from Jerusalem. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. It's 16.13 in Seoul, 7.13am here in London. Now, the South Korean president, Yoon Suk Yeol, is in the United Kingdom for a state visit. His arrival comes at a time when both countries are keen to boost their economic ties and Seoul faces growing threats from neighbouring South Korea. Well, I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by John Everard, regular Monocle contributor, British diplomat who served as the UK ambassador to Belarus, Uruguay and North Korea, among other postings. Good morning, John. Good morning, Emma. Well, by all accounts, this is rather a lavish affair, isn't it? Uh, no, it's uh, the the elements are typical of a state visit. The the significance is not in the lavishness, to use your word, uh, of what's going on. It's the sequence. This is the very first state visit since King Charles was crowned. So the the, the South Koreans recognise that and think it's deeply symbolic and a, a gesture of warmth and friendship towards them. Uh, so tell us a little bit about. I mean, how? Okay, well, let's deal with the British first, shall we? I mean, this is, as you say, the first state visit um, hosted by Britain since the coronation of King Charles. Um, and, you know, there will be um, carriage procession along the Mall to Buckingham Palace, the President's address to Parliament. There'll be a state ban- banquet on Tuesday evening. Why do you think that South Korea has been the recipient of, of, of this invite? Is it simply timing or is there something deliberate in it? There's a bit of both. Uh, the uh, Firstly, this year, because this year is both the 70th anniversary of the end of the Korean War and the 140th anniversary of UK-Korean relations, uh, which are being sort of talked up in, in, in a huge way. Uh, but also, the UK is trying to build alliances uh, with a number of East Asian countries. So we signed a partnership agreement with Singapore, uh, we signed a partnership agreement with Japan, and South Korea is the obvious next step. So it's a big thing for the UK. And the obvious next step in what context? I mean, I mentioned a moment ago a desire by both countries to boost economic ties. Yes. Uh, there, are, there are two prongs to this visit. Well, two big ones, at least. Uh, firstly, there's the economic issues and trade, and secondly, the security. Um, on the economy, both sides want more trade. Unusually, the UK 
actually runs a trade surplus with South Korea of over a billion pounds a year. Uh, but there's a feeling on both sides. There's a lot more where that came from. And there's also a lot of investment at stake. Uh, if the uh, plans under the agreement to be signed to tomorrow go ahead, it's £20 billion worth of South Korean investment in the UK. It's, it's big money. On the security side, the UK wants to persuade South Korea to join it in patrols to, as it puts it, uphold the rule of law. This means patrols in the South China Sea. China has already said it's unhappy with the idea, but I don't suppose South Korea is listening. Uh, it also means patrols to stop North Korea bringing in illicit cargoes, uh, on which uh, South Korea is extremely enthusiastic. So there's a lot to be done there. Security too, big issue. South Korea is one of the world's biggest armaments manufacturers. And there's been a lot of talk of direct supply of munitions from South Korea to Ukraine. If that goes ahead, that frankly is a game changer. That gives the Ukrainians much more munitions, much more equipment uh, than they've been hoping for, and it's going to cause the Russians a real headache. What could what difference could it make? It mean, both sides in this war are short of munitions. They're having to ratchet back their artillery duels because they keep running out of shells. And both sides are short of, uh, of basic equipment. Uh, the South Koreans can produce both in large quantities, ease those shortages on the Ukrainian side, whilst the Russians are still short, and enable massive fire attacks of the kind that the Ukrainians have been carrying out uh, just south of the Dnipro. That suggests that, as well as economic ties and, ties and defence ties with the, with the United Kingdom, there is a sense that Seoul wants to position itself, I think someone said, as a global pivotal state, that it wants to be able to shape international events. Yes, that's putting it sort of on the positive side. There's a negative side too. You see, South Korea is a small country. Remember, this place is is not much bigger than Scotland. Uh, it's very, very crowded, and it feels, as it says, like a minnow between two whales. Uh, it's desperate that its voice should be heard, that it should matter on the world stage. It's delighted that a major player like the UK is taking it this seriously. This is important for South Korea. And indeed, when you talk about you know the, the minnow between two whales. Um, there is a need, isn't there, to, to make sure that that minnow is well protected. And yes. it's strengthening ties with the likes of NATO and also uh, strengthening ties with, with, with AUKUS, I mean, of which the United Kingdom is a, is a, is a member. Yes. I mean, it, it is proactively trying to shore up a, a international support from the great, you know, from the big organisations and the big bodies. Exactly so. We, we had uh, President Yoon attend the NATO summit in Lithuania uh, just recently, uh, very keen to develop closer defence ties bilaterally also with the United States, a reaffirmation of the US-South uh, Korean alliance, and also fence-mending with Japan. This is important. South Korea and Japan, because of the Japanese occupation, have been at loggerheads for a long time. Uh, President Yoon has, gone, has worked very hard at restoring those relations. He knows that for his country's security, he needs a good relationship with Japan, and the Japanese have responded warmly. And for a career watcher like you, or you're somewhat rather more than a career watcher, what's it like to have a visit like this in London today? It's a big thing. All of a sudden, you know, this country with which I've been involved for so long now, for better or worse, uh, is, is in the headlines. And people are talking about Korea. It, it feels good to be noticed. And does it feel, I mean, you, I'm, I imagine there'll be some sort of involvement from you. You'll be, go, you'll, be, you'll be attending some of these events. What are you expecting to be said and done? 
Uh, yes, I'm going to the, the speech in Parliament this afternoon. I'm rather looking forward to it. Uh, what will be said and done? Big agreements, uh, both commercially and in security. The partnership agreement to be signed tomorrow is a weighty document and enables all kinds of things. And I think you know, there's a, the, the symbolism to this visit, sure, I've, we've just been talking about that, but there's a lot of good, hard weight in it too. And the soft power element to all this. I mean, anybody who's been, who was in London last summer will know that, well, this summer, will know that there was an enormous K-pop concert in Hyde Park. It was phenomenal with 80,000 fans pouring down to, to the centre of London to, to watch this. Are we looking at a moment here where the, the, but South Korea is not just um, reaching out when it comes to defence and economy, but, but culturally there is a sense that South Korea is planting itself quite firmly here in the UK? Full disclosure, my views on K-pop are unprincipled. But yes, you're quite right. The Korean wave, as the Koreans call it. Uh, everybody wants a bit of Korean culture. Um, K-pop, sure. Uh, Korean films. I mean, several big Oscar-winning hits over the last several years. Uh, Korean footballers. I mean, the Koreans do culture in a big way, and they do it really, really well. I think, John, you have to accept the fact that despite the quality of it, it does actually rather do the job that perhaps you've been wanting it to do for years when it comes to K-pop. Grudgingly, I suppose I have to recognise that, yes. John Everard, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme, we'll go through Finland's decision to close four border crossings with Russia with the commander of Finland's defence forces. We still need to allocate more money to defence to make sure that we are able to support Ukraine in long term, but at the same time reinforce our own capabilities to deter the threat what is there. It's not going away. More from Timo Kivinen a little later on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter, to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. in Berlin, 7.22 here in London. Let's go through today's newspapers. Joining us from Istanbul is the journalist Ruth Michelson. A very good morning to you, Ruth. Good morning, Emma. Um, Let's start with this utterly baffling story about this cargo ship that's been hijacked in the Red Sea by Yemeni Houthi rebels. They say the ship is Israeli. The Japanese say that it's operated by them. We believe it's British-owned and the Israelis have got involved. That is right. It is rather confusing. The uh, the Houthi rebels yesterday released a video showing them, um, or what they say shows, does seem to show the seizure of the ship. Um, utterly terrifying for everybody involved. Um, they have said after warning last week that they were um, constantly monitoring and searching for any Israeli ship in the Red Sea. That that's why they've they've hijacked the ship. Uh, as you say, the Israeli 
MPs, including the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, um, came out and and said that they weren't involved. But um, there are records showing that the ship is um, there are links to uh, one of the richest men in Israel. Um, and uh, according to Al Jazeera, the uh, Iranian foreign affairs spokesperson yesterday um, Durant, uh, denied any Iranian involvement in the seizure of the ship. Um, Iran backs the Houthi rebels. Um, and as you say, Israel has continued to say that the ship is British owned and Japanese operated and the Japanese have come out to uh, condemn uh, what has happened. So yes, it's not exactly getting any less confusing, is it? Uh, no, but what it does suggest is that the Houthi rebels have got a, a significant amount of power here because they seized this ship by helicopter. And this immediately made people suggest that the Houthis don't normally have that amount of uh, that number of resources to hand. So Iran must be behind it. Well, I mean, it's certainly an escalation um, in terms of what we've seen so far um, in terms of a you know, regional escalation of what's happening in the war between Israel and, and Hamas. And that's what the Houthis have linked it to. Uh, the other sort of widening element of this is what will happen exactly as the Israelis have pointed out, to shipping going through that strait in the Red Sea. And this is something that we see in some anal analysis from Al Jazeera, um, that shipping is expected to continue. So, you know, what's going to happen in terms of the Houthis' threats to more Israeli-linked ships? And they have basically outlined three potential options to avoid further hijacking. Um, so sending armed ships to accompany all commercial traffic, destroying some of the Houthi capacity at sea um, and persuading them diplomatically to refrain from attacking. All of these require the uh, input from other countries, uh, including countries bordering the Red Sea, which would be Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Um, and there are various reasons why the Saudis wouldn't necessarily want to do have that kind of uh, interaction with the Houthis. Egypt has said they're trying to remain neutral. And so according to Al Jazeera, the only force left to deal with the Houthi threat would be the United States Navy, which, of course, would be a further escalation. Indeed. I mean, one suddenly realises that you have this this one incident, which, although already appears to have lots of players involved, could suddenly escalate into something that, that was, would, is absolutely unwanted. Exactly. And and this is why we're seeing Japan uh, ramping up a kind of diplomacy, saying that they have directly approached the Houthi rebels um, and that they're trying to get um, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia and Oman um, to participate. Uh, this is, again, in the words of Al Jazeera, to uh, basically get involved with diplomacy to try and release the vessel and release the hostages, uh, the crew on board, who are from a whole other slew of nationalities in addition. Let's move on to another story. Um, the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is on his travels. He's going to Algeria, isn't he? Is, this is a, a largely a, a diplomatic effort to, to shore up support for, for what, for, for, for Gaza? Well, this is Erdogan asserting himself in the world of regional and global diplomacy again. So um, the Turkish press has some rather sort of dry readouts that um, obviously come from the Turkish Presidential Communications Directorate talking about how um, Erdogan and his Algerian counterpart, Abdelmajid Taboun, will co-chair a meeting of the Turkey-Algeria High-Level Cooperation Council, catchy name, um, and that there will be diplomatic talks. But at the same time, there is mention 
of the increased diplomacy between uh, Algeria and Turkey. So uh, the foreign minister, Turkish foreign minister Hakan Fidan uh, met his Algerian counterpart and uh, in the words of the Daily Sabah, the Turkish uh, outlet, highlighted the expanding relations with countries in North Africa. So Turkey's um, efforts to have um, increased relations across Africa and North Africa in particular and the wider continent where Turkey is pursuing a cooperative rather than exploitative approach. Um, and this is, of course, a, a huge contrast between um, the kind of visit that we're expected to see today and the discussions around Gaza and what happened recently when Erdogan visited Berlin. Uh, just explain to us what this collaborative rather than exploitative approach could mean. Well, that's a very good question. I mean, the Turkey certainly has relations with large parts of um, of Africa, um, and that Turkey would say that this is a collaborative approach, that they're not looking at resources, that they're looking at expanding these relations, but other countries might disagree. Um, how much is um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan trying to... Uh so shore up support in terms of um, he has very, very much come out as as being uh, hostile to Israel and uh, and his take is very much on, on, on a sort of an anti-Israeli approach for when it comes to uh, the war against Hamas. Um, how much will other leaders listen to him? Well, we certainly saw uh, when he was in Germany that things got pretty combative with the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. So Erdogan was quite happy to go to Germany and and take this position of this, um, in the words of Politico, trading barbs at this uh, press conference with Scholz. And that's something that, you know, works for Erdogan's public image internationally and domestically, that he's doing, he's forging the kind of relations that work for him, that work for Turkey, and that he's a kind of rogue element that isn't necessarily going to cooperate with the West when the West demands. Um, and so this is just a continuation of that, that he's having relations with another country that um, is has generally tended to be quite anti-Israel as well. And this is shoring up that kind of relationship. Um, let's move to a story which is dominating so many of the headlines uh, across the newspapers today, which is this continuing uh, drama at OpenAI. I mean, if you just look at what happens with the Financial Times, it's saying that OpenAI board stands firm in face of staff revolt over Altman's ouster. It keeps moving um, because we have Sam Altman, the boss of OpenAI, being dispatched from his job last Friday. And the repercussions have been very significant around tech, haven't they? Absolutely. I mean, this is a company that is enormous in the in the world of tech. Um, I rather like the Wired opener on this, which said OpenAI was in open revolt on Monday. Um, over 730 employees, in their words, signed an open letter threatening to leave unless the board resigns and reinstates Sam Altman as the CEO, along with his co-founder. Um, and it just sounds like it's complete chaos. So um, as they point out rather remarkably, some, one of the people that signed the letter um, was the company's chief scientist who has been blamed for coordinating what they called the boardroom coup against Sam Altman in the first place. The interesting thing in all this is that Microsoft must be absolutely enjoying every single minute of it because it is now cherry-picking the departing C-suite from OpenAI and bringing it over to them. 
Absolutely. And there's suggestions that other rivals of OpenAI have been openly posting on social media saying anyone that's deciding to leave OpenAI because of this, would you like a job? Talk to us now. So it's only benefiting OpenAI's rivals. And this is why we're seeing um, various employees, C-suite people saying that this is sort of damaging the company's mission. Um, and obviously, this is sort of damaging to the idea of of tech and business in Silicon Valley more broadly. It's not been a great time for Silicon Valley in general with um, things like the Sam Bankman Freed trial. So this is just another continuation of this idea that there's just chaos and what's happening is very unclear. I mean, we still don't really know why Sam Altman was was uh, fired in the first place. Ruth Michelson, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is 7.31. A quick look now at what else we're following today in the news. The U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has visited Ukraine, where he's pledged $100 million worth of military aid to the country. Mr. Austin held a day of meetings with Ukrainian officials. There's been speculation recently of a decline in support for America's assistance to Kiev after Russia's invasion last February. Japan has condemned the hijacking of a Japanese-operated British-owned cargo ship in the Red Sea by Iran-backed Houthi rebels. The Yemeni militia claims the vessel is Israeli, something Israel denies. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has blamed the Houthis' backer, Iran, for the hijacking. A spokesman for the government in Tokyo has confirmed the ship is indeed operated by a Japanese company. And the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has been quoted as saying the government should just let people die during the Covid pandemic rather than impose a second national lockdown. Mr Sunak's words were noted down by the government's chief scientific adviser during Covid, Patrick Balance. They're presented as evidence during an inquiry into the British government's handling of the pandemic. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. in Helsinki, 7.33 here in London. Now around 300 asylum seekers have arrived in Finland over the past few days and it's prompted the Finnish government to close four of its border crossings with Russia in an effort to stem the surge in migrants. While Helsinki has since accused neighbouring Russia of deliberately funnelling migrants to Finland's crossings in retaliation for its decision to join NATO. The Kremlin, however, vehemently denies these allegations. While earlier Monocle's Andrew Muller heard from General Timo Kivanen, who's commander of the Finnish Defence Forces and the nation's highest-ranking military officer, to go through the evolution of Finnish security. Andrew began by asking whether Russia is trying to use the borders to provoke Finland. Well, first, it was late summer when we, our border guards observed that Russian border guards changed their uh, ways to operate, meaning that they allowed people from third countries coming to Finland without valid travel documents. So it wasn't a surprise that what happened now last week, that the volume is, is increasing. And our border guards supported by other authorities, including defense forces, we have prepared for the situation what we have right now. And uh, let's see how it develops. So it's wintertime, of course, and that may have an impact or effect on, on uh, immigrants or refugees who are coming up here to North because they first they need to survive there before they are able to come to our border. I mean, are you noticing an increase in activity along that border since Finland joined NATO? Well, militarily, you know, Russian armed forces, they are deployed to the Ukrainian front, if I use that word, which is, by the way, very Russian wording, uh, front. 
So uh, militarily, it's peace and quiet. There are some basic training going on. But up in the north, of course, uh, they have the strategic asset in Kolan Peninsula, meaning that they have more uh, uh, air and maritime activities up there in the north, covering the Barentsi and also northern Atlantic to some extent. Has that accession to NATO changed your job in particular and changed the outlook of Finland's defence forces? I know that Finland's government has announced that it will spend 2.3% of GDP on defence next year. What kind of things do you need to spend money on that maybe you didn't feel like you needed to two years ago? Well, first, the national defence activities so we have done a lot of uh, consequence planning with different authorities. You know, more detailed planning to counter all possible possible threats coming from the east. Then we have increased the volume of our refresher training for reservists. Then, as you mentioned, the government in spring 2022 decided in our scale uh, uh, quite a large uh, supplementary budget to us. So we have uh, increased our procurement active with especially procuring those sort of platforms, systems, ammunition, what we already have in our inventory. So we are not developing new capabilities with that money. It's just adding on what we have already to be able to operate in a prolonged uh, rises. Then, of course, secondly, support to Ukraine. That's for all us, I mean, in European and Western armed forces. And the third is then uh, the <laughs> NATO access and and membership uh, uh, line of activities. So uh, it's lots, lots of going on. And coming to the, the last one, the NATO accession and membership, we have been NATO partner since mid-1990s. And since 1990s, the political tasking to us has been that we need to develop our defense force in a way that there are no technical obstacles to join NATO if on political level and if the nation so decide. So technically, there hasn't been that many changes since the day we became full member in April 2023. Uh, of course, there is a difference of being a full member and a partner nation. So first of all, we have aligned our national defense plans with broader NATO consequence plans. Then, of course, taking part in all the day-to-day NATO activities up here in the north and so on. I mean, you've now had nearly two years to observe Russia's modern military in action in Ukraine. What has surprised you about how they've performed? Well, I would say, first of all, that in Western countries, we overestimated their capability and capacity because since Georgia war, they lost, I mean, Russians, a huge reform in the armed forces and then they have operated in Syria and so on. So the assessment on the Western side was that they were more capable since February 2022. And then I think they underestimated the Ukrainian side, their capability, but especially the willingness or the will of the nation to defend the country. And of course, after the spring 2022, then they had to change their way to operate in a way and uh, change their plans. And now after the two years... I think their strategy is some sort of attrition strategy, meaning that they're thinking in Moscow that we Western countries will get tired first of this war and uh, that will mean that the support of Ukraine will also decrease. I don't know if that happens, but we uh, in Finland at least are committed to 
to support Ukrainians. And I think uh, what, when I speak with my NATO colleagues, I mean, also on the military side, we all are committed to support them. But it's, of course, a political level decisions, whatever we do in that respect. You talk there about an overestimation of Russia's military capability. But do you feel like, and this is something that we've heard a lot from European countries closer to Russia over the last couple of years. Do you feel like countries further west are still underestimating Russia's ambitions uh, of taking land further to its west? Well, my observation is that Western militaries take threat seriously. And uh, we have seen now over these two years uh, that Russia is a resilient country. They have been able to boost a defense material production uh, and so on. So we should not underestimate them now, even though they didn't succeed in the beginning, luckily what they tried to do. But it would be, you know, use mistake now to underestimate them. And I think that we Europeans, we need to do more for our security. And we military can't solve this challenge. We can only advise our political leaders. Basically, that means that we still need to allocate more money to defense to make sure that, first of all, we are able to support Ukraine in long term, but at the same time, you know, uh, reinforce our own capabilities and, and capacity to deter the threat, what is there. It's not going away. Uh, just finally, I, d- I did want to ask whether you see any parallels with what is going on in Ukraine these last nearly two years now and Finnish history of a bit longer ago. There have been, as I'm sure you're aware, a lot of comparisons between Ukraine's defence against Russia and, and the winter war fought by Finland in 1939-40. Do you think those comparisons are valid or are the situations just completely different? Well, there are similarities. First of all, it's the same country. Who, I mean, the aggressor, even though the wording is different, then Soviet Union and now Russia... And they have attacked a smaller nation. So what comes to numbers, they are superior, at least in our case in winter war. Of course, Ukraine is a little bit, not only a little bit, uh, but uh, a bigger country, population, etc. and so on. But still, they are smaller than, than Russia. So that's one similarity. And then there's another similarity, and that comes to will of population to defend the country. Like in our winter war, the most important defense line was between the years of our population. And that's the same in Ukraine. As you see, they have demonstrated it. The will to defend the country and stay united, that's the most important defense line. And uh, I think those are the two, two similarities. And that was General Timo Kivanen, commander of the Finnish Defense Forces, speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. So 
7.42 here in London now, the opening of a new train service is ordinarily something to celebrate, with the promise of fresh opportunities, new jobs and new connections. In Mexico, however, a high-speed rail line is being met with fierce opposition, even as it nears its inauguration. It's called the Maya Train, a 1,500-kilometre-long line connecting tourist destinations on the Yucatan Peninsula. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by Andrew Thompson, a Latin American specialist and regular contributor to the news site Latin News. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Now, before we look at what's wrong with it, could you just explain to us what the original project involves? Well, the original project is very closely entwined with the presidency of Andrés Manuel López Obrador, a sort of populist left-wing president. Uh, And he came up with this idea that one of the major inequalities in Mexico is the regional balance with a more developed north and a very impoverished south. So the idea of the Tren Maya is to take economic development um, and employment into the deep south of the country, and in this case in in the Yucatan Peninsula. It's also linked to the president's um, strategy to fight the drug cartels. Um, The idea is that by creating new job opportunities, the president has claimed one million jobs will be created, Uh, young men will have less incentives to join uh, the drug cartels as uh, foot soldiers. So it was part of the president's idea of um, development and pacification. So it sounds like a perfectly good and well-meaning and well-intentioned idea. So what's gone wrong? Well, the devil is in the detail. and <laughs> Some of the detail is, is um, you know, very, very concerning. Um, various levels of concern. One is that um, because this is a presidential project, Uh, The president has been urging speed, speed, speed. He wants it completed before the end of his six-year presidency next year, and he's more or less achieving that. However, um, the cost of of that fast project has been incredibly high. Um, Initial estimates were that it would cost seven to eight billion dollars. We're now talking about 28 billion dollars, which means that the budget has multiplied by a factor of three or four since the creation of the project. The second major concern is the damage to the environment. The president, um, who is very, very good talker, if you know what I mean, um, claimed way back that the whole project could be done without felling a single tree, uh, which is patently untrue. And the government has, in effect, admitted that something like 3.5 million trees have been um, destroyed as part of opening up um, rainforest areas for the for the railway track to pass through. Um, there is also the government claims that it is consulted locally, and it did run a kind of um, referendum back in 2019 when 90% voted in favour of the project. However those voting were only 3% of the electoral register in the five affected states. So most people have not approved this. And a lot of the local indigenous communities uh, believe that the project is um, destroying the environmental balance and also threatening some major cultural archaeological um, relics across the peninsula. So there is fear on that side. Um, And there is also quite a number of specific um, environmental and fauna protection issues as well. Um, That part of Mexico has lots of cenotes, uh, which are kind of um, 
un underground caverns uh, filled with water, which are beautiful and attractive. Um, and there is a fear that the work on uh, the rail on laying the track is destroying a number of those cenotes, which are um, tourist attractions in their own right. So we have three big issues here, don't we? We have the environmental damage, we have the cost, and we have the the the, the heritage, the archaeological significance of of what this new line is is is, is what campaigner says. It, is destroying. Um, just tell us a little bit, firstly, about the cost. I mean, why has it gone from, I think, an estimated, as you said, eight billion dollars, eight billion US dollars, to to twenty eight? Um, I think there are various factors. Uh, one is that you know, like all big projects, once you get into the detail, you find a lot of things that you didn't know at first um, and become more complicated. So there are areas where the track has had to. Um, avoid uh, monuments and archaeological um, areas of, of national importance. So they've had to build in diversions, um, getting away from those areas. The original estimates were probably underestimated. That's how you get a project approved. Um, you give it a low number, and then once the government is committed, um, you, you, you start pushing it up. Uh, another major factor in this is that the president um, has effectively handed management of the entire project to the army, um, which uh, has control over the budget and will be, um, the, in effect, the owner of the project. So once it's up and running, um, the profits of the railway line uh, will go straight into the army budget. Um, so, you know, as in all these situations, when there are large amounts of money uh, floating around, there is also a possibility of corruption. So all that has been pushing up the the final bill. This thing is too late to stop, though, isn't it? Uh, yes. Um, strangely, perhaps, uh, the current president did stop uh, a massive project created by his predecessor, uh, which was um, to rebuild, to create a new Mexico City airport. Uh, and Lopez Obrador, when he came to, when he took office, said the previous project on which something like six to seven billion dollars had already been spent uh, was corrupt um, and not acceptable. And he cancelled it and came up with his own uh, alternative plan. So there is a kind of history of every Mexican president has to have two or three major infrastructure works, uh, which they push through and sort of... Um, lose interest in uh, things done by their predecessors or political enemies. Um, so it does look as if um, President López Obrador has the power to finish off this project. Um, his successor uh, may have somewhat different ideas and may have, in effect, to pick up the pieces, pick up the tab um, and try and ensure that the project is, you know, long-term positive for the local populations. Andrew Thompson, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Time now for music news. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined on the line by Will Hodgkinson, the Times rock and pop critic. A very good morning to you, Will. Good morning. Good morning for many. Not so good for the gazillions of people who try to get tickets for Glastonbury and who are now feeling rather world-weary. 
Glastonbury sold out in one hour. And the strange thing about this is that obviously no artist has been announced. And so what does it mean when the festival becomes so much bigger than the acts that appear there? I mean, there's rumours that Madonna's going to play, Liam Gallagher's been mentioned, but these are just rumours. And so no one's buying a ticket for that. And it's a, it's a phenomenon, really. I can't think of another festival where this would happen. Um, so yes, it's very sad for all those thousands upon thousands of people who want to uh, spend a very expensive weekend in a muddy field not knowing who they're going to hear. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Because I was talking to today's producer, Christy O'Grady. She tried to get tickets and um, she couldn't. And I said, well, you know, how do you feel about that? And she said, well, it's hard to be um, too upset when you don't know who's playing. It's, how does that sort of change the focus and change our priorities when it comes to booking things? It really does change the whole thing. I mean, I think with Glastonbury, it's become part of the it's become part of the sort of summer season, or you know, it's, so, it's such a mainstay of British culture that it's it's being at Glastonbury that counts. I mean, the one thing with Glastonbury is true is that it's so massive that the experience far outweighs any particular act. But then, you know, if the acts were truly terrible, which obviously is unlikely. Glastonbury could fail. I mean, it hasn't always been the case. So there was the year when um, Jay-Z played where it didn't actually sell out. You know, that wasn't so long ago. So it's not always guaranteed. But at the moment, Glastonbury has this hold on the British imagination. Tell us a little bit more about actually who is left to play, who is great. We we were thinking about, you know, who's played in the last couple of years. And the list is shrinking, isn't it, in terms of who the options are for an enormous headliner? Well, that's right. I mean, I think there's a, there's an, a panic button in Emily Eves' house, which goes straight to Coldplay. Um, and so they, they're always, you know, they're always av- available, I've got a feeling. <laughs> and some people might I mean, just think, well, that's not a reason to actually sign up to, to Glastonbury. I mean, no offence, obviously, to Coldplay. I agree with you entirely. I mean, I think I think Madonna is the big one. Madonna's one who's who's been talked about a lot at the moment. The other big one, and this is a very big one, and this has been, t- this has been sort of mooted over the years, is Oasis. So Oasis, if if and when they reunite, it would make sense that they do Glastonbury and then do a handful of absolutely massive American and you know British concerts uh, for the money. Uh, you know, and Glastonbury would be for the announcement. So it's it's possible. I think at this stage, it's highly unlikely it's going to be twenty twenty four. Yeah, there aren't that many people left. I mean, the Stones have done it. McCartney's done it. Elton John's done it. Neil Young's done it. I mean, in terms of that level of fame. Maybe the weekend? I don't know. There aren't that many left. Marvellous. OK, thank you very much indeed for that. We'll be looking forward to seeing an Oasis reunion. And where does that idea come from, just by the way? Well, it's been... It's, <laughs> Have I you mean, just made I, that up, Will? No, I haven't made it up. I did an interview with Noel Gallagher earlier this year, and he said, and normally he's, he's ruled it out, and this time he was saying, my phone's not ringing, my phone hasn't, he hasn't rung me, Liam hasn't rung me, I'm waiting for the call. In other words, he was talking through the press, which is what the you know the Gallagher brothers always used to do. So my feeling is that it could well happen, but I am not saying you heard it here first. I don't think it's happening anytime soon because the relationship is still pretty bad. Right. OK, thank you for that. Now, let's talk about the return of uh, an amazing group from the 1970s called Saimande, um, described by, so, by uh, I think it was a BFI have said it's, it's as you hear so so often, one of the greatest bands you've never heard of, simply because if you've been like, um, I don't know, getting your groove on a dance floor somewhere, you will have heard Simande, but not known who they were. Yeah, that's completely right. I mean, and Simande were an early seventies band from Balham in South London. They were all um, uh, British 
British-born British born black guys. Most people thought they were African or Jamaican. They weren't. They're from this country. They did this amazing groovy mix of kind of funk, jazz, rock, and a touch of Rastafarian sort of spiritual consciousness. They got sampled everywhere, and they were they had a moment of success in America, but they never got very big here. And they split up in 1975. The two main guys went off to become lawyers. A totally different world, and with unbeknownst to them. The entire hip hop world uh, had discovered the, the the breaks of those those Samandi records, and so they were sampled constantly. So yes, if you danced to De La Soul or the Fugees or countless other bands, you would have heard Samandi samples. And there's uh, a film was made of them recently called Getting It Back, and it's coming out in January. And it's really wonderful story because they didn't expect any of this. Uh, they played South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, a couple of years ago. And we're just amazed at the reaction, especially in America, where most people thought they were an American band. They thought they were, you know, like an early 70s New York funk band, but they weren't. They're from Ballon. So the whole story is remarkable. And, and yeah, two fantastic albums. And one of them is coming out next week, reissued because the original is impossible to find. And that's the second album, second time around, which is just a fantastic record, very joyful. So it's a, it's a really nice story. It's a kind of second chance. I think we can actually treat ourselves to a little bit of some, Andy, can't we? Right. That was a tune, Brian. I mean, that gives you a little bit of an idea of just how gorgeous their music is. Beautiful, yeah. It's, they're, they're fantastic. And very, very nice guys, very interesting. And I remember thinking when I heard about them, I thought they were kind of, you know, that the, the sort of the hippie scene of Notting Hill Gate in the early 70s, you know, sort of squats and stuff like that. And I told them this and they were laughing and saying we were getting jobs as lawyers. You know, it couldn't have been more different. So, yeah, they're, they're great. And, and it's really good that they're finally being discovered. Um, tell us a little bit more. I mean, because they're going on tour as well. I mean, they mustn't be they mustn't be in their first flush of youth by this stage. There is that gorgeous feeling that there's longevity in music now. Yeah, there is. And also the thing is, is that because they've had normal lives, they're not, you know, they, they would lead it. I mean, they, they split in 1975. So since then, uh, Patrick Patterson and Steve Scipio, who's the guitarist and bassist, and it's really their band. Um, yeah, they've been working as, as um, civil rights lawyers, essentially. Um, there's um, a guy called Pablo Gonzalez, who sadly died. Um, and they said that Samandi really was his life. And after it split, he was so devastated he he went he went to live in jamaica and devoted himself to rastafarianism um and he died before all of the all, before he could really see this second birth of samandi which is very sad but um yeah i mean the great thing was i i saw them at south by southwest last year and they were fantastic really good they didn't seem like a band who hadn't played for 50 years you know they seemed, seemed you know really tight so Yes, it's a good story, and there is longevity in music. Very quickly, longevity in shops as well. HMV, we've got about a minute to talk about this, so tell us. It's reopening on yeah. Oxford Street. HMV, 2019, closed down. In the in the interim, becomes one of those awful candy stores and, uh, you know, American candy stores. It's it's returning. It's going to be, you know, this is HMV, it opened in 1921, and so it's it's had its 100th anniversary, and it's going to be... You know, it's going to be back to selling records, but also probably a lot of merchandise, which is where the money is now in physical product in the music world. So, and you know, I think they're going to be returning to having concerts again, which they had with the Spice Girls, Blur played on the roof. 
So this is good news and it's good news for Oxford Street too. Will Hodgkinson, thank you so much as ever for joining us on The Globalist. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Christy O'Grady, Emma Searle and Monica Lillis. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye and thank you very much for listening. <laughs> 